I'm pulling my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, so today I'm going to do another lessons learned. Um, normally I space these out, but um, I'm talking all about Innistrad and Dark Ascension and very soon Avacyn Restored, and so I figured I would do both these lessons learned near each other. Um, so last time I talked all about Innistrad, and um, Innistrad, like I said, was one of, I consider it right now, as of all the release sets, my best set. Um, so, Innistrad was me talking about a set that went really well. Dark Ascension, well, it didn't go poorly. It had a lot more problems along the way. Um, and so, this is me talking about a set that was a little more problematic. Um, I'm happy with how it ended up, but it was a rough, a rough ride getting there. So, the interesting question is, Innistrad, I had, you know, very little to start with. I knew I was doing gothic horror and doing the horror genre, but like... I had a blank piece of paper. Dark Ascension, I knew what I was doing. I was following up something that I'd done with Innistrad. I already knew what I was up to, yet it was a lot harder. So let's explore what was going on and what did I learn from it. Okay, first thing you have to understand is, because this plays into it, which is very important. Um, So many, many years ago, at this point, I don't know, eight years ago, um, I was told by my then-boss, Randy Bueller, that I could hire an intern. But hiring a design intern is tough. You know, the development team, they go and look at pro tour people, and you know, they, they have a whole place to look to find interns. And I was like, I don't know where to find a design intern. And so I said to Randy, I go, can I find it any way I want? And Randy's like, well, what do you have in mind? And I pitched the idea of the great designer search. Um, Randy said, okay. I did it. It went very well. Uh, Alexis Jansen won. From that, both Alexis Jansen and Ken Nagel and Graham Hopkins, and Mark Globus all ended up getting um, hired by Wizards, all of which are still at Wizards, by the way. Um, And then four years later, which happens to coincide with this story, Dark Ascension, we did a second great designer search. Um, And for those asking, when will the third great designer search? It is something that I do think will happen. Um, I think just a matter of time. I can't tell you when it'll happen, but I, I do believe that it's something that... I, I believe it's a when and not an if. I do believe it will happen. Okay. But anyway, the reason this is important is during the time that I was doing Dark Ascension, we were doing the Great Designer Search too. And, and here's the problem with the Great Designer Search is we never ever book time for it. It's always this thing that we're going to do and it's like, oh, you know, we'll just do it when we are able to do it. We, we never sort of like allocate time and schedules for it. I don't know why. If we do GS3, hopefully we will. Um, but for some reason, we keep doing it without sort of take, thinking about how much work it'll be. And then what happens is it's a lot of work and um, it eats up all the time. So while I was doing the um, Dark Ascension, Great Designer Search 2 was going on and it was just eating up all my time. I had no spare time because my spare time was I don't know. Anyway, so I was really, really busy, way more than normal. I mean, I'm normally busy. Obviously, I do a podcast in my car because I have no time to do it elsewhere. Um, But I was even more busy than that. Um, And so I think I was very preoccupied. So the thing that happened when I started Dark Ascension was I was very focused on the plight of the humans. I was very story-focused. So in my mind, the story was we open up in Innistrad. The humans are in a bad place. Their world is slowly being overrun by monsters, and the, the, their bastion of hope, which was Avacyn, has disappeared, and things are just getting worse. 
Um, and the idea of Dark Ascension was things get even more worse. You know, it, it often talked about, get your, get your character in a tree, throw rocks at them, get them out of the tree. Well, this was the throw rocks at them part. So this was, things were supposed to be really bad. And I was really focused on the plate of the humans and how bad things were. And so I made Fateful Hour. I, I, I made a lot of mechanics that sort of, you know, we did made Machaeus, the Unhallowed. We, we did all these things that showed up how bad the humans were. Um, and I got a... So Tom Lapilla, this was his first lead development. Um, and Tom was the one that really opened my eyes and said, you know, you're really stressing on how bad the humans have it, but part of, of making a set exciting is playing the positives, not the negatives. Like, come by Dark Ascension. Man, the humans are in trouble. You know, that, that's not really the way you sell something. He's like, we, we need to not just play, you know, play up how bad the humans have it. Let's play up how awesome the monsters have it. You know, magic's a game all about cool creatures, and the monsters are cool, and one of the things in Innistrad, well, the reason people liked Innistrad is people had fun playing the zombies and the vampires and the werewolves and the spirits. You know, that, that was fun. Playing the monsters was fun. Instead of playing the set as being, oh no, look at how bad one tribe is doing, how about, hey, look how good all the other tribes are doing. You know, we should really make this a monster, exciting for monsters. Yeah, play up the positive. So that's, the first lesson I had is, um, part of making a, a set or a game is making sure that you are stressing what's to love about it. And I think I was, I was getting very caught up in the story, I think. You know, the story is all about the plight of the humans. But really, what makes the set exciting is not that the humans are in horrible shape. What makes the set exciting is monsters! Monsters rule! And that I, I needed to play up the positive. And that's a general good design rule, which is accentuate the positive. What is your game doing that will be fun for your players? What, where's the fun? And it's important. I, I, I think I was so caught up in kind of right, in the story moment that I was forgetting like where the fun is. Um, and we did a lot of cool things that involve humans in plight. Like there's an entire new strategy, a black-white strategy, where there were monsters, mostly vampires, I think, eating humans, sacrificing humans. And it was a fun deck, and it was cool, and you needed humans more for fodder than you needed them. You know, you weren't building up humans. You were kind of using them as a resource. And that was a pretty fun deck. In fact, that deck made it into standard. It was a fun deck. But, but I wasn't, you know, there's ways to play the positive in a way that sort of plays things up. And I, I really, it, Tom really got me out of this focus in which I was so preoccupied that I, I, was, I was just kind of following along with, with the, the pattern and not saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I have to sell the set. I have, you know, I want people excited by the set. You know, what am I doing that makes it fun to play? Where's the fun? And that's a, that's a big lesson. In fact, uh, my um, 10 Things Every Game Needs, one of my things is fun. It's one of the 10 things every game needs. Uh, and it's very important when you are making your thing that you're thinking about how, how is this fun? Where, where is the fun in my design? So the first lesson I learned from Dark Ascension was I got distracted from the fun. I was kind of, I was focusing on the flavor at the sake of the fun. Um, and like I said, I found ways, once I focused on it, to be flavorful and fun, but I wasn't being particularly fun and I needed to be. Another important lesson of Dark Ascension was, um, one of the things that I had done in Innistrad was, I knew that I had a tribal component, because obviously you could play the monsters, but I was trying to be careful that I didn't want... One of the things that we had happened during... Um, so Onslaught was the very first tribal focus set. 
Um, and Onslaught's tribal was actually not nearly as high. I think people think of it as being really high, but you can go back and look. It's not nearly as high as people remember it being. So when we did Lorwyn, which was the next tribal block, we really ramped, we amped it up. I mean, we amped it up. And what we ended up doing was it was too amped up. That It was too what we call on rails, which meant that, okay, pick a tribe, and then once you picked a tribe, that's what you were doing. You didn't have the luxury of bouncing around. You had to stay very focused. And then less fun. It's less fun when you make a decision early on in your draft and then that dictates all your later draft without a lot of flexibility. You want people to make decisions and point them in directions, but then have some flexibility of what to do. And Lorwyn was, was what we call two on rails. So when I was making Innistrad, my goal was I wanted tribal to be a thing. I wanted players to build casual decks to have fun with them. I wanted players to even be able to draft and occasionally be able to draft it, but I didn't want to force you to do it. So one of the things that I tried to do in Innistrad was make it a component. There was a little tiny bit of common, but most of us had it uncommon. And the idea was, okay, you know, if you get one of these uncommons early, you can maybe go into this. Um, so the idea in, in uh, Dark Ascension was I'd up it a little bit, because it had been a little bit low in Innistrad. So I said, you know what, when Dark Ascension comes from three months, Dark Ascension's in there, we'll ramp it up a little bit. Not so much like Lorwyn. Um, so we decided to make a cycle of uncommon lords. Um, I think three of them ended up being captains. Um, the idea was the monsters would get one and not the humans. Humans would get something um, in absent of storage room if the humans set. But so I made an incomplete cycle. There's a bunch of incomplete cycles to show the humans in trouble. And so I made one for each of the monster tribes. The werewolf one ended up being a wolf because it couldn't be a werewolf. And so that wasn't a captain. The other three were captains. Um, but they all had the same. They're all, um, I think, one CD. They're all one, one of each color and I think one other. They were two twos. They gave their whole team plus one, plus one. And they granted an ability that they themselves had. Haze, first strike, something like that. Um... And then I think they also, well, I, the, some of them granted abilities, and I think the zombies, like whenever you died, it, it drained your point for one. Each of them granted plus one plus one in some ability. Some were static abilities, some were trigger abilities, some were um, keyboard abilities. But anyway, it, it made your team better in a way that helped your team. Um, and I like the idea that, okay, a little more focused, a little more pointed. The, the problem, though, was they were too focused. They were too good. And if you opened one of them in your first pack, you kind of had to pick it and then you were kind of on rails. And so that was a mistake of Innistrad. That I was trying so hard not to repeat some uh, Lorne mistakes. And it was just a cycle of cards. It was four cards. Uh, and, the, and the answer is those uncommon should have been rare, um, looking back. that I, I liked them existing. I wanted them to exist for casual constructed. But by putting them in uncommon, I caused a little bit of a problem in draft. And Innistrad draft is really, really fun. People love it. It's one of the most popular drafts we ever did. And I think Dark Ascension was fun in general, but one of the problems was opening a captain up in your first pack. Um, oh, no, you didn't. Okay. Is this to be draft BAA yet? Um, when did that start? That's interesting. Um, Dark Ascension, was Dark Ascension the first set to draft BAA? I don't remember. But anyway, that, that, that's another thing that uh, the captains probably wanted to be rare. Um, the other thing, let's see. Fateful Hour. Let's talk about Fateful Hour. Um... Faithful Hour is a good example of what we call a top-down mechanic. I wanted to show the humans in peril, so I tried to make a mechanic that played off the humans in peril. And so, for those who don't remember, Faithful Hour is, you have an effect, but if you're below five life, the effect is amped up. And we tried to do Faithful Hour is effects that would help you keep from losing the game. So if you're in desperate straits, you get extra bonus, and that extra bonus hopefully will help you from losing. Um, 
The interesting thing about this mechanic was it was flavorful. It was actually very flavorful. It didn't go over very well. And the reason is, I think, was um, it's, it's kind of a mechanic that says, um, like, you have to be losing for it to do something. And most players... So, uh, I think on the internet they refer to it as Magic Christmas Land. So, one of the things we've learned early on is players, when they look at mechanics, are very optimistic. Players assume that the best stuff is going to happen. They assume that, that whatever they need, that, you know, that when they look at a card, they go, what's the greatest possible thing that can happen? And they tend to judge cards based on the best case scenario. So let's judge the problem with this mechanic is, this mechanic is all about the worst case scenario. If you believe, for example, that I'm never going to get before five life, I'm, the game's always been going well for me. I'm never losing the game. Well, when you look at this mechanic, it's like, this mechanic sucks. I'm not losing the game. Because when you look at it from an optimistic eye, which is how players look at mechanics, um, the mechanic just reads sucky because you're like, I'm never going to be in that situation. And, when, and without the faithful hour, the, the, sucky, you know, the cards aren't particularly strong. They're only strong if you're at that situation. And, you know, the mana burn was gone. Although, once again, we couldn't have made the mechanic if mana burn existed. Um, people often ask me, by the way, about mana burn... Um, was there design space created when Man Burn went away? And the answer is, things like Faithful Hour is some of that space. Um, because if you can control your life, you can't use life as a, as a metric. If you could just make yourself get down below five, just by you know, mana burning yourself, then it, it, the mechanic becomes a lot more powerful, and that's something we have to cost for. And then if you naturally are doing it, it's weak. You have to be sort of manipulating it, which is not the point of, of stuff like Faithful Hour. Anyway, the lesson of Faithful Hour was the lesson of Magical Christmas Land, of understanding how players look at mechanics, that they are optimistic. Um, it's the same reason why if you have a mechanic that requires you having something, the players go, okay, yeah, I assume, I assume I'll have that. And that players will look at conditional things usually in a pretty optimistic light. You know, they, oh, well, for every this, well, I assume I'll have a lot in play, you know. Uh, people love Divinity for artifacts because the idea is it's free. It's free. Of course I'll have a lot of artifacts. It's free. Now, ironically, that was kind of true. But, uh, <laughs> okay, barring broken mechanics. It is interesting how Faithful Hour made me really understand that you need to be careful when you make mechanics, that how players perceive mechanics has a big impact on um, the perception. Um, and, and that's one of the other big things, and it's another big lesson, is um, trying to have a good understanding of you make things and then understand how the audience is going to see things. So what we've learned is there's a couple of different ways that the audience will perceive a mechanic. Number one is the mechanic uh, is perceived weak and in fact turns out to be weak. The mechanic is weak, turns out to be strong. The mechanic is strong, turns out to be weak. The mechanic is strong, turns out to be strong. Okay. Um, mechanic is strong, turns out to be strong, everybody's happy. Looks good, it is good, yay. The mechanic is strong, turns out to be weak. You can have a little of that. Uh, it'll, it'll create good first impressions, but you want to be careful not to have too much of that because in the long term, people first impressions are judged on apparent strength by the long term. So you don't want to make too many appear strong, are weak. Then you have are weak, appear weak, are strong. You get some of those. Um, part of the fun of playing magic is taking things that you might not realize are good at first blush and finding out they're better than you think. So appear weak, eventually strong, you get some of that, but you have to be careful how much. If you have too much of that, then your set just appears weak and people are less excited by it. Okay, appears weak is weak. Um, you don't want a lot of that. Um, it, you sometimes can't avoid it. Sometimes you, you, there's things that you think will be better than they are. Um, 
But as a general rule of thumb, you want things that long-term have play value to them. And so if they look weak and are weak, you don't want too much of that. Um, but anyway, one of the things to learn about is Fateful Hour is a mechanic that um, looked weak and ended up being weaker than we meant. I think we meant it to be a little bit stronger than it was. So it ended up being in a bad place where it was weak on appearance and then it ended up being a little weaker than we meant. So it really wasn't a mechanic that ended up being able to do much. It wasn't, it wasn't a mechanic that seemed weak and then with play you go, oh, this is much better than I think it is. It really didn't ever get a chance to reclaim itself. And so Fateful Hour has definitely went down as a mechanic that was flavorful but not loved. Um, now on the flip side, let's take a look at Undying. So Undying was Persist but with plus one, plus one counters. So Persist was a positive received mechanic. It was a strong mechanic. Um, so Undying did this interesting thing where people said, oh, it's Persist but better. Now, it turns out that we have to account for things. If something is stronger, we have to balance it in the costing. So, but, once again, people, people are not as good at judging costing. The players, I mean, the top-end players are good at it, and it'll trickle down. Meaning, if something's strong or weak, eventually a player who's very good at identifying the strength of something will eventually inform people that are not as good at it. But most Magic players, in a vacuum, without aid of other people... It, especially with a new mechanic we've never seen it before it's hard to say oh is this good or bad I mean I'm I've been doing this job for 20 years and I will sit in, in playtest sometimes and ask the developers and go I'm not sure is this good because I don't know and I've been working with the set I've been playing with the set non-stop and sometimes there's cards that I'm not sure whether they're good or not so it's hard it's super hard it's very hard um, and so Undying did this neat thing where it seemed like just because people don't always associate the cost, it just looked like Persist was good, and this is even better. Oh my god, this must be a crazy mechanic. Um, no, Undying turned out to be pretty good. It did see constructed. It was a pretty good mechanic. Um, so, it's interesting that you have two mechanics in the set that went really opposite directions. There was a mechanic that appeared weak that was weak, and a mechanic that appeared strong that was strong. Now, the, the mechanic that appeared strong probably wasn't as strong as it appeared, and the mechanic that appeared weak probably wasn't as weak as it appeared. But, Perceptually, the audience went in very different directions. They really loved Undying. They really didn't like Fateful Hour. Now, interesting, once again, remember the point from earlier on, that I wanted to make sure that I celebrated monsters and also I was playing up the plate of humans. Well, it turns out the thing that celebrated monsters is just an awesome mechanic that made monsters better. People really loved. The mechanic's like, oh, well, this only works when humans are in trouble, really failed. And so it's an interesting sort of insight into... Um, how you have to be careful when you're sort of making mechanics to be presented. The next big lesson is following up something that you love. Um, I was in an interesting spot, but uh, Dark Ascension was very interesting in that, uh, other than Shadowmore and Eventide, and as I explained last time, I didn't know I was doing Eventide when I was doing Shadowmore, so I, wasn't, I didn't set myself up quite as much. But during Dark Ascension and Innistrad, I knew I was doing Dark Ascension. I knew I was handing off to myself. So I definitely took things and pushed them back. A lot of times what happens when you're making a set is when you push something off, you don't know for sure that it's going to be in the next set. You give it to the team. You suggest it's good. I happen to be on most design teams. So I'm at least around to sort of speak up for something. But I don't know for sure that it's going to be there. With Innistrad, because I knew I was doing it, I had a lot more confidence that if I pushed something off, that didn't mean it was going to disappear. It just meant I was going to do it the next set. Uh, Black Hat is a good example of a card that I really liked. And if I believed that it was... If I had done Innistrad and not done Dark Ascension, 
I would have had a pretty... I would have talked very closely with the Dark Ascension lead to say, look, this is a really good card. We, we push it off for numbers, but please, please, please get this in your set. As is, I was lead, so I made sure to get it in my set because it's a really good card. Um, and when I say a good card, I'm not talking power level, although power level is okay. I mean, it's just very flavorful. You know, we were doing uh, Gothic Horror, Black Hat, Unlucky. There's a lot of cool, neat things about it, and I really liked how the card was designed. Um, but anyway, the uh, interesting lesson I had was that knowing that I was going to do the set, I left myself a bunch of stuff. Um, but what I didn't do was I kind of said, hey, I felt like the Innistrad lead designer wasn't particularly nice to the Dark Ascension lead designer. Because what the Innistrad lead designer said is, I got cards I really care about. Hey, Dark Ascension guy, I'm going to give you cards, and you really got to put these in. But I wasn't thinking about what Dark Ascension was doing. I just kind of passed things off knowing that I cared. So the Dark Ascension lead kind of got a bunch of stuff it had to include because the, the, the Innistrad lead really cared, and the Dark Ascension lead said, okay, I know the Innistrad lead cares. Um, but I had a bunch of stuff that I had to work around, and so it, it caused me a little bit of trouble. I wish when I had done Dark Ascension, not only did I think about what Innistrad was giving Dark Ascension, but I had spent a little bit of time mapping it out. Once again, I, I had mapped out the humans. I did map out the plight of the humans, but I didn't, that, that didn't end up being quite what Dark Ascension wanted to be. Um, and so I had done some work, but I, I hadn't focused enough on sort of how to sell the set. And so what happened was, the, the, the logical effect when I wasn't focusing on it was, you get to a point where you're like, oh, I really need, I haven't been paying attention to this. The structure isn't what it needs to be. And so I had to really go back and redo some of the structure. Um, now, one of the things I did like about Dark Ascension was, I did a few things that I'd meant to do during Innistrad that I had failed to do. Um, so one of the other things about being follow myself up was I sort of said, you know what, here's some things I didn't do in Innistrad I really want to do. One of the biggest things was I hadn't given a great identity to spirits. Um, as I explained before, uh, the ghosts really came in as an afterthought. Originally the plan was three monster tribes, and when I mapped it all out and realized that I was in red-black, black-blue, red-green, um, I'm like, oh, I, I have three allied pairs, and I know that I was going to be humans. I'm like, oh, I'm so close, you know, and I realized, uh, for those who remember the story, is I realized I needed to have one more um, monster tribe, and so I went to the cereals. So I went to, um, I was trying to think of what are the, what are the most go-to monster tribes. And when I was thinking about it originally, I thought, I thought about, there's, there's a t-shirt called the Monster Squad, and it was Count Dracula and Frankenstein and the Wolfman. I'm like, okay, you know, zombies and vampires and werewolves, those are the, you know, the, the Hollywood trio, Hollywood, Halloween trio. Um, but when I realized I needed a fourth, I started thinking of where else do you see Hollywood, Halloween tropes? And I thought of the cereals. There's Count Chocula, there's Frankenberry, and there's Booberry. There also was Fruit Brute and Yummy Mummy, by the way, for those who don't. Uh, but Yummy Mummy Mummies is another kind of zombie, uh, and Fruit Brute was a werewolf. Th those are the series that didn't quite make it. But Blueberry's a ghost. I'm like, okay. I guess when you think Halloween, you think of vampires and, and zombies and, and uh, werewolves. But you also do think of ghosts. Ghosts are pretty iconic. So that's where I got down the path of doing ghosts. And once I thought about doing ghosts, I'm like, oh, ghosts want to fly. White, blue are the flying colors. It, it, it clicked in very nicely in white, blue. And then uh, humans ended up being the white, green. I ended up doing green for humans. Um, but I, the ghosts had been not the primary, and so I didn't pay as much attention to, to the ghosts. Um, and one of the things that walking out of Innistrad is I hadn't really given 
the spirits as much an identity, and they kind of were a flying deck. They were a little, little uh, you know, blue skies kind of deck where like you attack with flyers, and and most of the ghosts flew, so that worked. But I really hadn't played up the tro- of the ghosts, and so one of the things I liked that I did in Dark Ascension was that I managed to do that. And so, I mean, the interesting thing for me is, like I said, I hadn't done a lot of small sets. Um, over the years, I'd done a bunch of third sets. I'd done Future Sight. I'd done Fifth Dawn. I had done, um, obviously, uh, Eventide, but I really hadn't done a second set, uh, and I, I learned a lot of the lessons of this is understanding what a second set needs. Um, now, the funny thing is, uh, the two-block paradigm has changed things up, because um, one of the things about the second set, back when there was a third set, was the role of the second set was to be as much like the first set as possible without breaking too much new ground to save the new ground for the third set. Um, and the funny thing, by the way, I've learned having now working in the two-block paradigm is I talked about how the two-block paradigm took away the third set. What I've really learned is it didn't take away the third set. It took away the second set. Because now what we're trying to do in the two-block paradigm is we have a little bit of room to play around. It used to be when you did the second set, you had to hug the first set. You had to be as close as you could be because the idea was we needed to leave room for the third set That we because people were going to grow tired by the end of the year. We really needed to change things up. So the role of the second set was to kind of, at some level, distance itself from the third set. So what you would do is you would try to make it more like the first set. Um, and the lesson of Dark Ascension was trying to understand how best to do that. And it's funny, like, I think having now done it, I have a much better idea of how to make a second set, and then we change the world in which we're never making second sets again. So I've learned some skills that I don't know if I'll need to recreate. Um, But the interesting thing is, how do you play up the themes? And one of the things that we did, and Tom helped with this a lot, was saying, what were the draft strategies played up in the first set? How do we reinforce those? Because the goal wasn't necessarily to reinvent all the draft strategies. It was to make sure that you could connecting some of the stuff you did. Um, and so we made sure that some of the themes that were there, we made cards of similar themes. Now, we also made some different stuff. One of the fun things about doing a small set is you can shake things up a little bit and you can add some elements in that would make people rethink of how things. Um, the big thing about shaking up draft, though, is you have to make sure the theme you're playing with was available and there in the first set. Um, Fifth Dawn ran into this trouble where, like, hey, draft a lot of colors and Play, de- play decks with a lot of colors, but there wasn't support to do that. So we gave you a strategy that wasn't supported. And so one of the things we've gotten better at is if we want to have new strategies, they have to be new strategies to play up supported things, things that were in the first set that might not be there. Now, Concept Tarkir was very interesting because Concept Tarkir, we did exactly this, which is we, put, we made a set, Favorite Forge in the Middle, where we knew that different facets of it could be interesting for different drafts. So if you've drafted Cons with Fate and then drafted Dragons with Fate, the Fate cards aren't quite the same. I mean, they're, they're literally the same, but they, they aren't the same in relationship, that the cards that mean something have a little different meaning between the two sets, which is kind of part of the fun of doing that draft environment. But anyway, in Dark Ascension, like I said, I, I think I got a better idea. Like, oh, here's the other big lesson I learned is... No matter how long you do your job, there are things you've never done. Like, you would think, I mean, Dark Ascension was, um, Gatecrash was my 16th design. So I believe it was my 15th design, 15th lead. So you would think my 15th lead, and we're talking, you know, I don't know, 15, 16 years in. Okay, I'd, I'd done everything. I'd, I'd led 15 sets. But yet I hadn't done a, small, a second small set in the winter. 
And so one of the things that was very humbling is, and something that's important to realize is, I don't know everything. It doesn't matter how much you do the job. It doesn't matter how many times you do something, that you will always come across things you haven't done yet. No matter how much you think you've done it all, you haven't done it all. And that magic is very complex and there's lots of moving pieces to it. And you have to realize that you're, no matter how experienced you are, you will find areas where you are inexperienced. And that if, you take, if your attitude is one of I know it all, you will run yourself into trouble. And you have to recognize that you have areas of inexperience and you have to learn from them. And there are people who have, there are people who have less experience overall but might have more experience in something. Like, I had people on my team who had led multiple, Ken, for example, Nabel, had led multiple small winter sets where I had, I had actually never led one before. So I actually went to him and went to other people and asked questions and trying to understand, okay, I hadn't done this exactly before. And I mean, obviously I'd been on a lot of second sets. I've watched a lot of sets. I was head designer overlooking second sets. It's not like I was a complete unknown to me, but I, there's a lot of nitty-gritty that I hadn't faced before that when I was actually facing it, oh, I have to think about this. I've never thought about this before. Um, but it, it was very interesting of, uh, and humbling in a good way. I mean, one of the things in general is I like to be humbled by sets I do. I like for sets to say to me, you think you know so much. No, you don't. And go, wow, here's a problem I've never faced before. Here's a problem that I have faced before, but the, the parameters are so different that I got to handle it differently. You know, one of the things I love about my job, like I said, 20 years in, is I get caught for a loop a lot, um, which is a good thing. Like, if everything I did was just like, oh, ho-hum, I know this, I'm just, you know, filling in the blanks that I've done before, I would grow bored of my job. But my job constantly tests me, constantly, constantly tests me, which is, which is amazing. 20 years in to have a job that keeps me on my toes, 20 years in, like, you know, I... There's a lot of jobs for 20 years in, you're doing it by rote memory. You're, you're, you're not even thinking, you know, you're, not, you're not consciously thinking about what you're doing. You're so used to doing it that it, you kind of do it on autopilot. And my job is not an autopilot job. I'm like, oh, I've never done this before. You know, I'm working on sets right now where I'm like, oh, I've never done this before. And I got to figure out how to make it work. And I love that about my job. And one of the things that Dark Ascension taught me is, even when you think you're doing something, like I led in Estrade. I was doing the follow-up to the set I just led. Like, even then, I had a lot to learn. I made mistakes. That's the interesting thing about it is, I made way more mistakes in Dark Ascension than I did in Innistrad. Now, part of it was I was super busy, but part of it was I was less experienced. I walked in and going, hey, how hard did this be? This is a small set. I just did the big set. I just did Innistrad. How hard could Dark Ascension be? And it was a humbling. It was a very humbling experience because I had a lot more trouble with Dark Ascension. Part of it was I was doing some stuff I hadn't done before. Part of it was I didn't quite set up what I was doing. Part of it was... The, the mindset I came into was wrong. Um, and so, like I said, it was a very... I learned a lot in Dark Ascension. Um, I probably, in some ways, learned more in Dark Ascension than I learned in Innistrad, in the sense that I made a lot more mistakes. And as I often talk about, you learn a lot from your mistakes. I, I made a lot of mistakes. I mean, Tom Labilly, who was his first lead development, had to take me aside and go, I think you're doing it wrong. And, and he was right. I was doing it wrong, and I had to fix it. And I did, but... The fact that I had gone down a path and my lead developer had to bop in and say, I think you're... I mean, he didn't even tell me I was doing it wrong because I had been doing it so long. He's like, I think you're doing this wrong. And I, I said to him, Tom, you're right. I, I mean, I, I, I had to think about it and came back. I go, Tom, you were right. And I, I fixed the problem. Um, but once again, for example, I was very experienced. Tom was very inexperienced. I could have easily just said, Tom, you have no idea what you're talking about. You know, I've been doing this forever. You have no idea what you're talking about. This is my 15th lead. You know, but instead, I said, okay, 
he is saying something. Let me listen to what he's saying. Is what he's saying true? And it was true. And I'm like, okay, I need, you know, you need to listen to everybody. That everybody, this is true of the people you work with. This is true of your consumers. No matter what, if I get a piece of information from somebody, I listen to what they're saying. That doesn't mean everybody's correct. doesn't mean every piece of information is always correct. But I don't go into it assuming they're incorrect. I go, what do they have to say? Let me seriously think about this. And then I act accordingly. I make sure to think about what someone's saying and not write things off. And had I wrote this off, Tom came to me. I could, I could easily. It was Tom's first lead development. It was my 15th lead design. I was head designer. I could have easily just said, you know, Tom, 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 you know, leave me be. I know what I'm doing. And I would have been in trouble because I had a flawed set and Tom recognized it and I had to listen to him. Um, so anyway, that, that was another big lesson in Dark Ascension was um, it's important to listen to everybody. It's important to, to, to look at what you're doing. It's important to understand what you're doing. You got to find the fun. You got to accentuate the positive. You know, the Dark Ascension was definitely, was definitely a set where I stumbled a lot more. Um, and like I said, there's reasons. Yeah, my focus was pulled. Um, but once again, maybe that's another lesson, which is, hey, leading a set takes time and energy. There's no shortcuts. There's no easy version. A small set is not an easy thing. That's another big thing, which is, I think I've, I've done so many large sets. When I got on a small set, I'm like, Pfft. you know, I, I'm doing a large set. This is a small set. Small sets have their own challenges. Having less cards does not make it any less of a challenge. And the other thing, by the way, is a small set has a lot less time. Um, we're, we're, we're in the act of trying to change that. I'm trying to get small sets more time because I think small sets have a lot more going on than people realize and that in some ways small sets are harder in that we give you less time to do the small set. And um, that's something I'm trying to fix. But, um, you know, I had, I had to do a lot in four months versus, you know, doing a large set in 12 months, which was just a lot more time. Um, let's see what else. I'm almost to work here. Um, now, that said, I don't want to walk away at Dark Ascension saying, oh, I mean, I, I was pretty negative today. There's a lot of things Dark Ascension did right. There's a lot of positive things. Innistrad was fun. Dark Ascension followed up on that. You know, it did a lot of fun things. It, it made more of it. I feel like the double-faced cards, we did a lot of neat innovations with the double-faced cards. I think we messed around with Morbid and did some neat things. We did some cool stuff with Flashback. Um, there was a cycle of, like, doubling Flashback cards where you did effects and they got doubled if you Flashback. We, we, we managed to innovate some. That's something small sets are supposed to do. That we didn't... We felt like Innistrad and followed up on Innistrad and did Innistrad things, but we managed to put our own touch on them and add some things that were a little bit different. We managed to revamp the tribes a little bit. I gave them more identity to the, to the spirits. Um, we gave some twists to things. I mean, I am part of Dark Ascension. I think I made mistakes along the way. Um, and like I said, there's things I would do differently if I had to do it again. But I, I, I do like the set. It's, it's not... I mean, maybe It's funny, sometimes when I really get into the negative things I did wrong, it, it comes across like there's no redeeming qualities. There are a lot of redeeming qualities. Um, the other thing that was, that was fun about Dark Ascension was... Um, I actually got to work with some people. Like, uh, that's the first, I think, design I ever worked with Matt Tabak. Um, and it was fun working with him on a design team. I really, really enjoy, by the way, of taking people that I work with in some other context and getting them on a design team and working with them on a design team. I had a blast working with Tabak on the design team. I, whenever somebody, for the first time, I get to work with them in a design capacity when it's not how I know them, it is a very neat experience. Um, it is very interesting to see how someone functions as a designer. And, um, and Tabak did a really good job. Um, the, uh, the, the, it, it is a, one of the other lessons, and this is something that I, I think I walked away, is part of, 
it's important to make sure that you are having fun while you're doing your job. One of the things I try really hard to do in my design teams is I want my design teams to be fun. I want us to get the work done. I want it to be good. I want quality there. But, but part of making it, part of the quality is you want the members of your team to enjoy the experience. You want them to feel part, included. You want the team to feel as if the whole team is doing something. Oh, this, is a good, this is a good podcast about how to lead a team. I'll probably do this podcast, so I won't get too into it now. But, but uh, I learned a lot of stuff about this about, uh, from Indestride about and, and Doug Ascension on some team leading. Um, it is much easier to lead a team when everything is going right, and it's a little harder to lead a team when things are... Like, we realized halfway through we had messed some stuff up. And I, by the way, took responsibility for it. That's another thing that's really important to me. Lesson learned, lesson I follow, which is when you mess up, own up that you mess up. I did not blame my team for this. I did not blame Tom. I, I said Tom is correct. You, I, I made a mistake. I, guy in charge, made a mistake. Um, and I fixed it. But part of fixing it was owning up to the mistake that I made. And I think that's another important thing to learn was that if you want to learn from your mistakes, you have to acknowledge you made the mistake. And you have to acknowledge that you were the one that made it. Um, one of the things, if you ever, there's, there's an article that comes out maybe once a year talking about magic, uh, how to get good at magic. And basically what the article says is, until you own up that the reason you're bad at magic is you make mistakes, you will never get better at magic. And the way to get better at magic is acknowledging the fact that the things that go wrong mostly are under your control and you cause them to happen. If every game is mana screw and every game is you drew the wrong, you, know, you had a bad card draw or whatever, you're never getting better. And the same is true of anything, design included, that if you make mistakes in design and you don't own up to that, you're what... If you don't own up to your mistakes, you will never improve. And Dark Ascension is a good example where I made a bunch of mistakes. I owned up to my mistakes. I recognized I had them, worked with them, and made a set. You know, made a good set because I owned up to, to the mistakes I made. And even now, after the fact, I think it's mistakes I made that get printed that I, I learned from and try to be better at the next design that I made. You know, I want to constantly be improving, and part of that is acknowledging that I make mistakes and that I can prove from my mistakes. But anyway. I'm now in my parking space. Ooh, we had a little extra traffic today. So anyway, I'm in my parking space. We all know what that means. It means it's my end of my drive to work. So instead of uh, talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed this peek at Dark Ascension. Talk to you next time.